morning. Good to be here. Good to see all of you here. It's uh, been a for me. It's been a pretty good week. Everybody around me keeps getting sick, so they did. uh, I didn't bring anything back, so don't worry. At least not that I know of. You know, be one of those carrier people. Uh, I have been screened. I don't know how many times and how many airports, but uh, uh, there seems to be more um, panic than there is reality out there. Oh well. One thing I just kind of let you know, had a pretty good trip in Romania, and my, my focus was on teaching the men in two different districts or states, however you want to call it, um, how to put their lessons together in a way that affects change in people's lives. Not just that we give facts and figures, but ways that basically, if, if, if my philosophy is if it doesn't preach to me, then it's not going to preach to you. And so... Never, not just giving out facts and things and not always, you know, just, you know, people say, well, when you point one four, finger forward, you're pointing three backs. Well, I always preach like this. But uh, if, it, if it's not something that touches my heart, what are the chances it's going to touch yours? And I actually see that through Paul's preaching. He is preaching his heart from where it, the gospel has affected him and how it can touch the lives of other people. So anyhow... We had quite a few sessions in two different states. I had quite a few men showed up for all the lessons. Uh, that's usually anymore when I go back. That's my main focus is teaching the teachers. Uh, so we had men and women, but primarily the focus was on men. Uh, but I went to this one village called Skitu, and they have a new building. It's a nice building. It's a small group of people, probably you know, about 25 to 30 that show up there each week. And I brought a cardboard box with me full of used glasses and I thought well we'll see what they think I think they forgot who I was I was kind of pushed out of the side and they were on that we we had an expression like crows on a June bug I guess but uh, they uh, they devoured that box and I guess what I'm thinking about when I'm seeing it is you go there you see there they're simple people and everything but you don't really realize the cost of certain things and how unaffordable it is for them so used glasses used reading glasses you know, and there was a few, like, you can get some cheap new reading glasses, too. They were just going through. They'd try on one pair. They'd try on another. And they'd help each other and whatever else. And that box just kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And so that was, and we really didn't have that much of a notice. I didn't give you much notice of what, you know, to uh, do that and to get that all together. Uh, I didn't know where I'd have room for more, but I'll probably do it again on a future trip. And so if you have used glasses, use, you know, bifocals, whatever they are, uh, hang on to them. And if you, want, if you don't need them, uh, I'll take them with me again. And we'll probably take them to Choriosh or Valle uh, Estancia, uh, the Lowell's familiar with those congregations. Yeah, so it was, it was a really neat thing to do. So anyhow, I, I appreciate your gifts and I appreciate your work for that. In a couple of weeks, I'm hoping to start uh, going through the Gospel of John. I was going to start today, but I kind of delayed it because I started, somebody kind of mentioned in a lesson I was listening to about Isaiah and the gospel. And it just got me thinking a little bit. I thought, well, before we get into John's gospel, we're going to look at Isaiah for at least uh, this week and maybe next week. Uh, Two chapters in particular that you should read and think about the gospel of Jesus Christ is Isaiah chapter 40 and Isaiah chapter 52. Now, we're probably all familiar with chapter 53 because that's where you get this, it almost sounds like an on-the-spot reporter at the cross describing what, it was going to, what was taking place with Christ. 
course, the thing we know about that is Isaiah writes this 700 to 750 years before the event actually transpired. But at the same time, Isaiah has so much of the new covenant, of the new gospel, the new way of life in his book that it's, it's amazing that you know, there's a, a picture we'll have later on because I told you a couple weeks ago that you're the fifth gospel. Well, some people refer to Isaiah as the fifth gospel. But when we get to the Gospel of John, we're not going to see a contradiction between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it's amazing how much different John is. It's almost as if Matthew, Mark, and Luke were standing over here watching things take place, and John was over here. Both see the exact same events, but from a different perspective. Because so much of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're not identical, but they have a lot of the similar things within their, within their <coughs> stories. Reaching a particular audience. John, on the other hand... He comes at the whole thing from a different angle. All still true, no contradictions. But it's amazing that, you know, what John does with his gospel and how powerful it is uh, for us today in the 21st century. But um, there's, a, there's a difference, I think, sometimes between the 21st century believer and the message that was 2,000 years ago. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, did we get it wrong? And I will say plainly, in my opinion, uh, being as hanging around this earth as long as I have and, and keeping my ears open to listening and my nose to the wind, I think a lot of times we have gotten the gospel completely wrong. I think a lot of preachers and teachers fail to understand exactly what John was trying to say and what the gospels are saying. Because I think part of the problem, well, John, and see, again, when I still told you his gospel is different than the other guys, it's because when John writes his gospel, there was a certain problem that was creeping up in the church. I don't even know if creeping up is the term. Exploding in the face of the church. And we won't go into much of it now, this Gnostics and all that, this worship of knowledge and everything. And so when John, what he does is he takes God's truth and he addresses the problems that he has seen in, his, in the churches that he's associated with, and he's addressing the problems he's seen that are in society that's all around him. In contrast, today, too many preachers have their set of assumptions and values and beliefs before they open the pages of the gospel. And what they do when they study, and, and, and you know, it's, the problem is it, it goes from generation to generation to generation, and so you might not even notice it happening. Because, you know, what's the average preacher preaching today? What he heard preached by preachers before him, and on back and on back. But we come with a set of, of assumptions about what God's will would be. And so when we get to the gospel, and when we get to the scriptures, we demand a message that validates what we already believe. That's where we kind of go, you know, when you kind of like cherry pick scriptures. You know, you take this one, oh, that fits with what I want. This one fits with what I want. That one there, I have no idea what he's talking about, so let's just ignore that one. Because it doesn't fit with our assumptions. Nothing could be more damaging to our sharing of the gospel than if we're sharing, actually, a world and a man-made belief system that does not honor the word of God. That's one of the things Amos kind of talks about when Amos was around. He... He, Amos says he's looking at a religious world. And that's the other thing. If you go through the Old Testament, problems, 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 
show me one time when they were not religious. That's the issue with the Old Testament. They were always religious. <laughs> the religion wasn't always right. Sometimes it was 180 degrees off. Sometimes it was just a pollution of the world with the truth. But they were always religious. The problem is they weren't always using God's will, God's word, or God's judgment to be the standard to judge the world. And we do the same thing today. We use our standards and then find scriptures that will back it up. And we'll see this as we go through because Isaiah is going to show a little bit different. But here, here's, what I, here's what Amos said. Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will spare them no longer. But what he's saying, he says, it will be my standard. My will be done, and you have to measure up to me. I don't measure up to you. And before you say amen about that, and you know, the problem is really not with the millennials or the Gen Xs or whatever. I don't know. I, I can't keep up with all the titles for every new generation. This is an issue that dates all the way back to the first writing of Scripture. And the problem is that for us today, we must strive our best to return back to God's will, God's word. And it's difficult because we come with baggage. We come with a certain way of looking at things. And it's so hard to put all that off and to seek a fresh understanding. What did God mean? What did he mean back then? And how does that apply for our generation when we try to live the will of God? I really do believe it's time for us to redefine the gospel and the salvation in a way that honors the heart of God rather than the way that honors society, religion, or a particular persuasion of religion. I said there's two powerful chapters in Isaiah, chapter 40 and chapter 52. There's, really, there's lots of powerful chapters in Isaiah, aren't there? But these two in particular take a look at the gospel that's getting ready to come and lay it out and said, this is what you've been missing all along, Israel. This is what you need. Now, both these chapters, are, eh, well, they're kind of popular in some ways. But, you know, with Isaiah chapter 40, we get that really cool song, you mount up with wings like eagles. And, and in chapter 52, it sounds like you're reading the gospel when you're reading it. It says, you know, it's the exact same thing that John the Baptist said when he started preaching. It's the exact same thing that Jesus said when he started preaching. But we find it all the way back there in the book of Isaiah. The big issue for Israel is this good news. Because God's gospel, and here's the problem with religion. God's gospel was not the gospel Israel wanted. And how often we see that even today. They had a completely different definition of what good news was. So when Jesus comes along and Jesus starts fulfilling the scriptures, they missed it. They missed it completely. Because what they were wanting, what they were expecting out of Jesus is not what Christ brought. And that's where this passage comes in. He says, you search the scriptures because you think of that in them. You think that in them you will have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you're unwilling to come to me, so that you may have life. And when you read Isaiah chapter 53, for example, today, 2,000 years later, we say, how could they miss it? How could they have not seen it? 
But it wasn't just the crucifixion. It wasn't just this idea of the resurrection of the dead. It wasn't just the idea of the cross. It was the idea of what life is supposed to be about in the first place. They completely missed it. And the problem that today, I think we do the same thing as those first century Jews. We miss it. We see their failure, and I'm really good at that personally. That's why I say, you know, the best sermons are if I preach to myself. Because I can preach to you all day long. I can really tell you where you've messed up. Uh, I have a hard time seeing where I've messed up. I have to actually, I have to force myself to do it. We see their failures, but we don't see our own. It's, it, the, the apostles even had this. It, what's amazing, when you read the stories, when you read, get to the end of the book of John, when you get to the beginning of the book of Acts, after the cross, after the resurrection, they're walking along with Jesus, and they ask, ask him, they said, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, that sounds like a lot of modern-day preachers when they say that. You know, there are preachers out there today who have, they actually seem to believe that Jesus failed in the Gospels. And he's got to come back and fix it one more time. And they've reduced the Gospel to some weakened Gospel, some earthly Gospel, centered around a, a stone building going to be built in a, over Palestine, setting up a spiritual dictatorship and a worldly government in Jerusalem. You know, that's exactly what's being asked right here. Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom? What's interesting, that's in Acts, Acts chapter 1, and the rest of the book of Acts answers that question. We want to go to the book of Revelation and answer that question where we can take all those mystical and, and symbolic and spooky different images and, and the beast and the mark and everything. The book of Acts answers this question. They said, you know, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom? He goes, well, I can't really explain that to you right now. But you go to Jerusalem and you wait for power to come on high. And then the rest of the book of Acts is going to answer that question of the restoration of the kingdom. But guess what? The kingdom that Jesus Christ is restoring is restoring the present progressive verb there is not what they were looking for. They were looking for this secular, this military, this political response to the world. And he says, no, the kingdom of God is within you. Don't, 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 if somebody says it's over there, don't go running to look. You won't see it. The kingdom of God is within you. Now, to understand the gospel, or to understand Isaiah, you kind of need to understand all the thousands of years that have transpired between God and man up to this point up to what Isaiah is bringing forward, up to the point of Jesus Christ, and even what's going on today. You know, even Israel, on their best of days, they were kind of failures, weren't they? They didn't ever comprehend. They didn't get past their own darkness. They never comprehended the light. That sounds like John chapter 1, doesn't it? So in Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet He's trying to describe to them good news. But he's using terms that they of 700 years before Christ could comprehend when he describes the good news. A higher purpose of life. A plane that they just 
up to that point had been unable to grasp, and most of them never did. That's the scary part, because today, most people still do not. And when I say that, yeah, it's talking about those irreligious, atheists, and whatever else is out there. Unfortunately, it's also talking to the people who claim to be people of faith. So here's the first opening salvo of Isaiah as he, he sings this song to the people. He says, comfort of comfort, my people, says the Lord, your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And he puts this in the context because if you know what's going on in the, at this time, northern Israel has been carried away because the people were wicked. You know, you could sit there... Any secular anthropologist or historian would tell you one reason for the destruction of northern Israel. Well, the Syrians were powerful. They're fighting with the Egyptians and all. God says, no, there's only one reason. It was their sin. And they're gone. And now what you have less of is southern Israel, which we call Judah usually, and the capital of Jerusalem. And people are nervous. And if you read even in Isaiah, you will see where the Assyrians come and lay siege to the city of Jerusalem, and people think it's all over. Remember Hezekiah, he gets so panicky, he takes the scroll of the letter of threat from the Assyrians, and he rolls it out there before the altar and says, Lord, look what they're saying about you. Look what they're saying about us. He, Isaiah speaks this to the people that are in a panic. They have suffered greatly. And the news on the street is not good. I guess it's a wrong version of coronavirus or something. But God uses that imagery of this invading army and all this crisis that's around, the real crisis. And he says, but there's a bigger crisis than what you're, you're thinking of. You're worried about Assyrians. You're worried about, well, in the future, be Babylonians. You're worried about, you know, whatever group is out there. He says, the real problem, the real crisis is your lives have been a constant failure. And it's that way because you have chosen poorly. But he says God forgives, and God is ready to start all over again. And when you think about what's there, because that's his opening remarks of this chapter, is there any stronger or more needed message today than this? Because we live in a religious world, we have tried and we have failed. It has nothing to do with how many pews are filled. It has nothing to do with how big the contribution is. But when you go home and in the quiet of your night, have you tried and failed? We've done it repeatedly. And here's the way we do it. We take a little bit of God and a little bit of the world. We take a little bit of love and a little bit of worldly pleasures. We hear people say, this, I'm not so bad. You know, and another one that you hear all the time, I'm no different than most. My two favorite ones, who are you to judge me? Or nobody's perfect. Now those four statements, the reality is, all four of them can be absolutely true. The problem is, all four of them can be absolutely destructive. A hundred percent truth in what you said, a hundred percent destructive. 
to be no worse a leper than the guy next to you in the leper colony is not really the prize I'm after. And for your life to be no more messed up than the average person out there is not the prize that we're going for. The good news is salvation from what you are and from what you live. So here's the passage a lot of us can recite just about by heart. The voice of the Lord is calling. Clear the path to the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I don't think there's anything too complicated in these words. And again, when you take this, you go to the Gospels, you'll see this out of the mouths of, of, of John the Baptist, and Jesus will quote part of it. There's nothing complicated here. And if I asked you to explain it, a lot of times you'd come up with all kinds of answers. You'd say, well, God's in charge, not us. That's what really means to be known. There's a new order. There's a new covenant coming. Um, sometimes you'll talk about judgment. And all those things have merit. They're true. But what Isaiah is desperately trying to proclaim is that the time is coming when we're finally going to do things differently. This time, God, Jehovah, Yahweh, God is in command. And you and I, in loyal faith, will do whatever he asks. When you go back and read that passage, it's, you know, mountains, you know, mountains leveled and valleys filled, and you think, kind of wild or crazy. What he's basically saying is, whatever God asks of us to do in order to achieve hope, he's not asking too much. You know, and it's, so whatever, you know, where you think about leveling a mountain or filling a valley and the effort that would take for that to happen. <clears throat> Obviously, no literal mountains were leveled. No literal valleys were filled. It's not until the TBA came along, I guess. But in your heart, God, that's too much. God, I can't. God, that's unreasonable. God, that's more than you should expect out of me. So the rich young ruler comes and he has his issues and Jesus says, well, here's what you need to do. And he goes, that's just a little bit too much for me. He walks away sorrowful. He says, this time we will do what God demands. Instead of doing it partly my way and partly God's way and thinking God's going to be happy with it, we'll surrender all. As much as he demands, whatever he says. No request is too difficult or unreasonable. And he says, and then you'll see the glory of the Lord. And that's, a, that's an expression that kind of confuses, I guess, a little bit. And I understand why it confuses. If you read your Bible and you see different things and you just, you can look up that expression, glory of the Lord, and see that interpreted or presented in so many different ways, depending on what chapter you're in, what book of the Bible you're in. But he says, when the glory of the Lord comes, everybody's going to see it. Remember though, Isaiah 40 is talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Isaiah 40 
He's talking about the book of Acts. Isaiah 40 is talking about the epistles that were written by the apostles. That's the glory of the Lord. Today, we have the same problem that they had back then. Because when Jesus came, Jesus of Nazareth, and he proclaimed the way of the Lord, most people refused. Most people failed to bow down. It's interesting when you look. Most of the time, Jesus is talking to religious people. Not always. The lady at the well in Samaria, not sure she would be, what would you call the rabbi of the community? Uh, Mary Magdalene had seven demons, so I have no idea what she was doing before encountering Jesus. Roman soldier says, surely this is the son of a God, or the son of God. Most of the time he's talking to religious people, and it seems like when he's not talking to religious people, he's very successful. Pilate's a big exception, obviously. But when he's talking to the religious, that's where they fail to comprehend. They fail to obey. They fail to bow down. And today, the same dilemma has taken over the religious scene. Most people fail to comprehend the lordship of Christ, and therefore they fail to give God glory. They fail to see the glory of, the God, of God. And, and again, at this point, it's tempting to get on our favorite issues. And I'm not making light of these. You know me. You hear me. If, if, if there's probably, you know, with the word that comes out more than my mouth than anything else about baptism. But that's not the end of the story. That's just part of the story. We're not talking about how often you take the Lord's Supper. I'm not talking about whether you call me reverend. Well, don't call me reverend. Do not please that? But, you know, I always think it's funny because I've been preacher Mark or Mr. Mark or Minister Mark for so many years. I am now finally Pastor Mark. <laughs> Scripturally. I know that Frank just twitched a little bit in his chair over that. But that's not the issue. Jesus is Lord. But we live as if we are the lords of our lives, and Jesus needs to adapt. Whatever God demands, whatever Christ proclaims, it's not a problem when Christ is Lord. Short of that, we don't see the glory of the Lord. So what is the glory of the Lord? Uh, we could spend weeks on that. There's so many passages about that. But I want, want to bring out two that we've been studying lately on Tuesday nights. The glory of the Lord. In Exodus chapter 34, Moses goes up to the mountain. And when he comes back down, he's oblivious to what's happened to him. He comes down, and this is the second time. I remember the first time, it didn't go over so well. He broke the tablets and had to go get a replacement. But he comes down, and he's got these two tablets, and they're written on front and back with the Ten Commandments. And he has all of these commandments of God that we read of in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And while he's trying to tell the people about them, they're panicking, and he has no idea. His face is glowing because he's been in the presence of God. His face is reflecting the glory of God. But then you get over to 2 Corinthians 
chapter 3, verse 8. And here's what Paul says about us as Christians. We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit. What an amazing change we have. What failures we used to be and what victors we are now. When, and only when, Jesus is Lord. And the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, we receive an amazing hope here and now. And here's, I think, where we really have a problem with today's preaching. I really think too often we look at the gospel as, be good, behave yourself, don't do this, you must do this, and if you could just hold on long enough, there's heaven. That's not the gospel Jesus preached. It's definitely not the gospel that Isaiah preached. Look what Isaiah says. Now remember, you've got to put this in, in chronological order. Isaiah, 700, 750 years before Christ comes, predicting the coming of the Messiah, predicting the gospel of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here's what he says. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. We don't read that correctly today because today, 750 years later, Jesus comes. Then 2,000 years later, we've been living as the church of Jesus Christ all this time. And so we read this passage and we declare that heaven's reward is when Jesus comes again. Again? There's nothing in this passage about again. This is Isaiah saying when Jesus comes, he will bring the reward with him then. Not someday, then. Isaiah is talking about the carpenter's son, who is God's son, who will open up the hearts of the people to the message, a message for living life here and now. I'm not ignoring heaven as, if, as our goal. In no way. But don't forget what Isaiah is trying to tell the people as he's talking. When Jesus comes, when the Lord comes, life changes. Life's meaning changes. Your faith transforms. What you are here and now is completely different. Here's the hard part. What is the reward that you're enjoying right now? Here's how Jeremiah describes the reward. He says, I'll put my law within them, and on their hearts I will write it, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And you read that and you think, well, okay, that, that's a new message. It's an understanding of God's word. Doesn't sound like a reward. The rewards I'm looking for, how about no war? How about no hunger? How about no coronavirus? How about me being the most popular girl at school? Well, you, not me. <laughs> what about me winning the lottery? That's good news. That's the kind of reward I'm looking for. Or maybe you are just looking for heaven. That's the gospel we preach. Is that the reward that Christ brought? Read the Sermon of the Mount. Understand when he tells us all those things in that sermon, he's saying, here's the reward. Take a hold of it. Grab a hold of it. Read about the new birth that he tells the Nicodemus. 
He says, you can have new life now. Read about those parables of the vineyard and the kingdom and the wedding feast. Read about the cross. Understand that the reward is meant for now. But so often, because our value system has not looked unto God, it doesn't sound like much of a reward. It sounds like something you tolerate, so eventually you can get the reward you're really wanting. The gospel itself, the life lived according to the gospel, that actually is the reward. Here's another problem. If you don't see these choices of faith as the reward for this life, what makes you think you're going to be any happier in heaven? When you see what, what Christ says, this is how to have a good life, you say, I don't think so. Well, <clears throat> do you think it's going to be different in heaven? Or maybe another way to ask this is, what makes you think that if you reject God's reward for today, that God's going to reward you tomorrow? So Isaiah goes on in his, in his song, and he talks about God's way instead of our way. So he says here, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or counseled or, or as his counselor has informed him. Because that's exactly what we want to do, isn't it? God, you've got it wrong. Here's the way it ought to be. And so when we see words like salvation, we only think of heaven. We never think of earth. When we see things like repentance, we say, well, stop doing bad things. And we don't enjoy life. Instead of change, find a better way. And we didn't get to finish Acts chapter 17 this morning. And Paul talking to all these philosophers. And when he tells them to repent, it's something completely different than what we understand. He says, your understanding of what this world is about and what life is about is so wrong, you're going to have to radically change in order to grab a hold of the reward that is actually out there. He talks about idols. You know what an idol is? Yeah. If he made out of wood, made out of precious metals. You can bedazzle, bedazzle it, I guess you could, or something. Now, an idol is when you take charge of religion and you dictate to God the way he should be and what you want. And we do it just as much today as they ever did back in the old days. The gospel doesn't work that way. The good news is God's reward, not man's wants. So here's the reward for those who are faithful, those who are loyal to God, those who trust in him. When you trust in him rather than yourself. Isaiah shouts this. I, I wish, I always tell you, when we read the Gospel of John, we needed either a, a black preacher or an Irish preacher, because preacher, just to catch the, the emotion of it. And I'm not sure who you got to get for Isaiah, but Isaiah is excited when he says this. And he says, do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired, and they will walk and not become weary. What you need to understand is when you surrender to God's way, now, 
you receive the only reward of value now. The people of Isaiah's days did not understand what he was writing. They probably could not sing that song without confusion because they already had in their mind what life was supposed to deliver for them. And it was everything that the world promises and nothing of what God had laid for a gift. Not God's reward. So here's the question you need to ask yourself. Is your life victory or failure? And it won't have anything to do with your 401k and what the stock market did or how good looking you are. If your eyes can comprehend the failure, then there's good news for you. There's hope. There's the glory of God. The problem is the price is pretty high. Now, I'm not going to give you a list of duties and requirements to make God happy, but there is a price at the price of your very own soul. You can no longer be Lord of your own life, and he does not share thrones. Instead, as it says in the book of Revelation, we cast our crowns at his feet. It's a change of life so radical, we call it being born again. I don't ask people to accept Jesus as a personal savior. If it's not blasphemy, it's pretty close. Because Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot enter his kingdom. What he demands is not accepting him. He demands a surrender, a complete surrender. That's what's all about with the baptism in water. Because what takes place while you're being immersed in that water is what's taking place inside the soul. You receive forgiveness. You receive new clothing in baptism. You enter a new life, a life of faith, of faithfulness. It comes with a radical change, so radical, we call it repentance, which means an about face. You're not in command, and you confess Jesus as Lord before men. He'll confess your name before the Father. Enter into the reward, and understand that the reward is for here and now. And it's time to give up the world's definition of what victory is and immerse yourself into God's path and God's reward. Whatever you need, we ask you to come now as we stand and sing. Bring Christ your broken heart.